This is Birth Aloud Radio, where we challenge the status quo around that most basic human right, how, where, and with whom we are allowed to give birth. I'm your host, Kristen Piscucci. Today on Birth Aloud Radio, we have Janelle Hanchett, who is the creator of the blog Renegade Mothering, and she's the author of the brilliant, life-changing book, I'm Just Happy to Be Here. She lives in Northern California with her husband and four kids. So I edited out the F word from your bio, Janelle. (laughs) I thought I would mention to our listeners that there actually is going to be swearing on today's episode. <laughs> I was also um, joking about the genius life-changing thing because I, I knew I was sending it to you. So I, I know, but I know. thank you for putting it in anyway. You're welcome. And it's not um, weird at all that people know that I wrote that. So that's good. <laughs> I'm glad we're starting out on. She's basically a superhero <laughs> with lots of fans. You can, you can read her blog at renegademothering.com and then Renegade Mothering is also on Instagram and Facebook and I'll put those links in the show notes. So yeah, so just once again to clarify for people, if you're listening to the show on the radio, then it, you know, like swear words will be edited out. But if you're listening to the podcast, there will be swear words. Uh, this may come as a surprise to some people, but I actually cuss like a trucker. I usually don't do that on my podcast, but Janelle does, and I would hate to, I would hate to take that away from you. <laughs> I'm also happy to not swear. I'm just I, mean, I know, I know. I often I don't really swear in interviews. <laughs> I'm capable of uh, switching up my lexicon to accommodate more delicate sensibilities, so. <laughs> no delicate sensibilities here. Okay. <laughs> not allowed. Okay, so Janelle, so I thought this was actually kind of funny. I said to you before, I was going to look up when we first spoke to each other because I read your blog. I was like, this is hilarious. And I love this. And this person is great. And she's really funny and smart and sharp. And I emailed you in February, 2013. Wow. And said that I love your site and it's so great. I said, I started off doing the perfect mother thing after an unexpected pregnancy and then threw it in the trash after about six months. Mm-hmm. the perfect mother thing, not the pregnancy. Right. And was like, you know, I love it. Keep up the good work, Kristen. And then I got an email from you in March, 2014, which is one year later. Wow. Saying, hi, right. hi, Kristen. Um, yes. I realized you emailed me over a year ago and I never responded. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's how we started our that seems real. <laughs> And then we became friends on Facebook and then you wrote this great book, which I read. I feel like I've gotten to know your family sort of on Facebook, which you have a kick-ass family. They're super cool. Thank you. Yeah. And then I also wanted to mention that you also wrote the blog post, How I Discovered I Am White, Mm -hmm. which renewed my fan-ishness of you. Because I really, really loved it and I thought it was awesome and I shared it. I will put the link to this blog also in the show notes, but this was pretty sweet. 
It starts out saying, when I was 14 or so, I asked my grandmother why we didn't have a white club at school. I don't recall her response, but I do remember feeling particularly smug and vaguely angry that there was a Latino club and a Chinese club, but not a white club. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. I mean, of course, the post goes beyond that. Right, right, right. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the post is sort of just tracing my realization or awakening of the fact that I am not unraced, right? That, that how I discovered I'm white, meaning I am white and I have all the benefit that is afforded to people based on that skin color. If you would have asked me when I was 14 or 15 or 16 or 17, does racism exist? I would have told you no. It was fixed in the civil rights movement. And if you would have asked me, does inequality exist? I would have said, yes, there are individual asshole racists, but Otherwise, it's just a level playing field and you just have to work hard. And, you know, that's what Martin Luther King gave us. And I, so I very much grew up sort of deeply entrenched in a whiteness and the total inability to see my own history as a person who is white and benefiting from that position, that race. And so when I went to graduate school I had that sort of blown open, which, yes, you heard that correctly, graduate school, that in itself is really unfortunate. (laughs) I had a single professor who began teaching us the history of American exceptionalism and racism and institutionalized racism and, you know, racism at the legal level and housing and healthcare and the justice system, um, not to mention the residual effects of slavery passing on through generations. And I discovered I'm white and I discovered what white privilege is. And I felt I had been seriously lied to not only by, but by my educators, but also just by the sort of larger societal messages. And I felt like once that top was blown off and once that truth was shown, I wanted more, not for the sake of some sort of like martyrdom or righteousness. You know what I mean? Yeah. Of yeah. like, it wasn't about anything like that. It was just a sense of just basic truth, right? Like, how did I not know this? Truth. Right. <laughs> it's the truth. And I never saw it. And in the interest of that truth, you know, I, I think once you see it, if you are willing to see it and able to accept it as reality, you see it all the time. And you have to do something with that information, in my opinion. So, And I I wrote that post specifically to white people, obviously, trying to hit maybe people somewhere in the middle there, right? There's the extreme, there's the people that already know, and then there's the extreme on the other side who are like, I hope you die in a fire. And I'm not going to affect them, but, you know, there might be people kind of like me out there who had never really looked at these issues, but were open to them, right? And that's one of the ways whiteness functions is that we don't have to look at it. It's constructed in a way that white people don't ever have to address it or even see it if they don't want to. So that post was kind of me sort of coming out of the closet in a way of, you know, I got a lot of, you know, why you got to get political and this and that. And I was like, well, look, you know, being silent is just as political, frankly. Yeah. It's just usually means you're. Well, and it's only political because it's not about you, person. Like, it's someone's life that you're talking about. You know what I, well, right. I mean? When you're talking about issues like racism, it's privileged to be able to call that politics when you're talking about something that 
to a person who is experiencing racism, it's not political so much as it is like survival and their life. <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, and also everything is political, right? Like, you know, why can't you, they would, you know, why can't you just write about motherhood? Why can't you? And I'm going motherhood is political as fuck. Like what really? Like, are you kidding me right now? <laughs> motherhood is like a hotbed of race and gender and class. It's like a battlefield for all of that. I mean, just no paid federal maternity leave and we could go on forever. Black women dying in childbirth more like a rising maternal death rate in the invisible labor load on women. I mean, come the fuck on. Like, it's not political. Come on. So it's like, we can either talk about it or we not, you know, we, we won't, but it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And I kind of prefer to just wear my stuff on my sleeve, right? I'm like, hey, this is where I stand. You can read me or not. I don't think you can separate politics from life, politics yeah. from writing. And I know that not everybody believes that and that's cool, but I don't think you can celebrate your politics from art. I think art is inherently political. Who gets yeah. seen, who doesn't, what gets famous, what doesn't, what gets the money, what doesn't, who gets the book deals. And also does your art convey, is it interested in finding the truth or is it interested in reinforcing systems that currently exist through silence or complacency? Silence is very, very political. And I think that's the piece that we've really soothed ourselves by inventing these imaginary spaces where politics don't exist, right? Air quotes. Mm -hmm. They exist fully. <laughs> They're just flying under the radar and complicit with what is, you know? So yeah. yeah, I'm not here to please everybody. And I made that choice a long time ago. Yay for you. It's funny you say that. I was talking to my therapist earlier today. Yay. <laughs> and that was like one of the things that I said, you know, the older I get and the more I go along, I, I just keep coming back to, I just care less and less about what people think and if what I'm doing is agreeable to them and if right. this is what they want to hear and if they're okay with it. Yeah. yeah. Which is nice. Which it actually kind of makes me think of, your whole approach to motherhood, which I love. And I think, I think back in 2013 or whatever, when I first ran across your blog, it was so refreshing to see someone just be like, listen, there's no such thing as a perfect mother. I'm a terrible mother. We're all terrible mothers. <laughs> you don't say that. But just like, it's just like, it's a made up fantasy thing that there's like this perfect mother and that we're all supposed to be the same person and the same type of person and this martyr and right. all that stuff. And I was like, this is so refreshing. It's so nice to hear someone say this out loud. And I wouldn't have said that out loud in 2013. Like I would have been scared to say that out loud. Yeah. I mean, that's why I started the blog was that nobody was saying what I wanted to read about motherhood. Well, so. let's talk about, so there was the one anecdote, which actually I can't remember if it was your book or your blog, where you were like at the park, your kid was standing on monkey bars or something. Right. And this woman said something snarky to you. Totally. And I was like, oh my God, I've had this experience multiple times where you right. like lock eyes with the person and you're like waiting for like some sort of human connection. Contact, yeah. Hi. Oh, hi. Oh, you're a, I'm a mother. We have our kids here. We're at the same place. Right. And instead you get like the judgment stare. wrath. Yeah. So my son was like, I don't know, maybe 10 or something. No, he's probably younger, nine. And we were at a, just a local park and I had 
all four kids with me. It was a summer and I, my baby was like one or two months old. It was a newborn. And so I'm sitting on the bench with the baby. I don't know. I think he was asleep or I was nursing him or something. And my son, there were those monkey bars that are like, you know, not the super high ones, like, but you know, maybe five or six feet off the ground and yeah. he'd over a sandbox and he was walking on top of the monkey bars. And I assess this situation and I go, okay, well, if he falls, he's going to fall in sand. So I suppose he could fall like through the monkey bar crack and like hit his, I mean, right. Like I kind of assessed it and I went, and I know my son, he's really, he's got a really good balance and really good physical, you know, not all my kids are that way, but he happens to be really like solid in his body. Right. He's always the one climbing rocks and doing these. And I kind of figure like if they can get up there, they can get down and, some some risk taking is okay, right? I was like, what are the chances of him getting hurt? And I had done this mental calculation when I saw him up there. And this woman looks over at me and she's like, do you see your son up there? And I was like, yes. And I'm like, oh God, I, I, I desperately re regret making eye contact with you because this is not gonna go well. Like I could already feel it. And she goes, kids get hurt, you know? And I was like, yeah, I know. But I kind of feel like if they can get up there, they can get down and like, what's really going to happen to them? It's a bunch of sand beneath them. And she's like, do you at least have health insurance? And I was all, uh, okay, we're done here. No, lady, I'm using your fucking taxpayer money to fund my bad decisions as a mother. Yeah. So that, yeah, like that kind of thing where it's just like, and, and, you know, the one-upping contests, like, you go, like, I've been to, you know, sort of events with moms maybe I don't know that well, and everyone immediately starts talking about what their husbands do for a living, and, and we're not actually talking to each other as human beings. We're assessing who, who has succeeded in the world and who hasn't, and I'm like, yeah, my husband's a construction worker. Isn't that great? He's hot as fuck. He's covered in tattoos. We're super broke. I think we have $3,000 in our savings account. Do you still want to talk to me or are we done here? Because, you know, and I, like, I've, I, I actually say stuff like that now, like, cause I just, I just get it out. Like, I don't, I, I can't play this game, you know, or like the, the, you know, whose kid talked first or whose kid walked first. I mean, and like, as you say, it's like, I craved, I've always craved as a mother human connection, right? Like see me as an individual, see me apart from my children. I'm usually pretty bored by motherhood, like the monotony, the daily in and out that just never changes. I don't find it infinitely fulfilling. I never have. And at the same time, like I'm here, I'm doing this work. I'm with these kids. They're all decent children, right? They're succeeding at a level that seems acceptable. <laughs> but They like, seem awesome from a distance. They seem pretty awesome. They're great. I mean, yeah, they're great. They're regular kids, right? Like they each have something super great about them. And they, they each actually have seem a... exceptional, but that's well, just my opinion. That, but yeah, but also you share the highlight reel, you know, like on social media, particularly with my older children, you know, I'm not going to talk about, because I feel like there's a point where kids become, you know, I'm not going to sit here and talk about my 13 year olds, the things that he does that I feel like are going to cause him big problems in his future. Right. So just feel like at some point you kind of shift to the highlight reel of your children you know what I mean but but I but I try to be pretty real about you know they all have something that's really awesome about them and they all have something that I see that is really going to cause them problems in their lives you know like wow like that's a personality trait that is going to suck for you when you're 30 
and I would love to be able to somehow get it out of you, but I also know that that's probably not going to work because I have personality traits at 40 that have been fucking with me my whole life and I still can't get rid of them. I don't know why. So, <laughs> but you know, yeah, or like personal choices about, you know, co-sleeping and breastfeeding. I mean, I never understood all of that. Like yeah. why motherhood is is conveyed in these sort of black and white universal terms when for me, every child and every experience has been so incredibly different from the previous one. And my condition has been different. And it's a, it's a matter of responding to the context of that particular child and my life, right? So it's just never made that much sense to me to make these sweeping rules about how long you should nurse or how often you should hold your child, you know, whether or not you should co-sleep. It's like, uh, no. Well, I also loved how you talked about giving birth how mm-hmm. you were like, I didn't want to have an epidural because I wanted to be in control. Right. That's weirdly a controversial statement Is to it? say I wanted to be in control. Like Is that. It? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like if you put that out publicly, that would be like troll fodder for how selfish, how it's not about you. You have control issues. But it's you my body birthing the baby. Right. But like, that doesn't matter. Like you don't exist anymore when you're pregnant, when you're giving birth, like you're secondary, you have now become the host body and your control is seen as like mutually exclusive from like the safety of the birth. Right. And we're supposed to like check into the hospital and turn over control to the doctors and the system. But if they want me to do that, they need to get some better fucking birthing outcomes. I'm sorry, but if I'm walking into a hospital with a 40% cesarean rate, when the World Health Organization recommends what? What do they recommend? 10, 12 or something? In the, in the realm of 10 to 15 to 20, something like that. Right. So if you're looking at 50% cesarean rate, you're doing something wrong. And so, no, I'm not going to blindly throw my body and my child in your arms it's always been logical to me that birth is a natural process until further notice, right? Like, like my body knows how to birth a baby. And if there's something wrong, isn't it great that we have access to medical intervention and care? But I also, you know, knew that, a, that an epidural increases your risk of cesarean. I've never had any judgment of other women who use epidurals. But for me personally, the idea of a, a needle going into my spine, A, no thank you, and B, I really didn't want a cesarean and see the idea of being numbed at all when I needed to push and hoping that it just weared off in time. I was like, motherfucking no, I don't trust anybody that much. Like I know that anesthesiologists can pull that off. And I wasn't super afraid of the pain, I guess. Like not that women just get up girls because they're afraid of pain, but I'm just saying I personally was not real intimidated by the kind of agony. And indeed I had a lot of agony. I, I had four births without epidurals or any, intervention at all, actually, any medical. I had two at home and two in a birthing center with midwives. It was a birthing center attached to a hospital. So it was a, basically a medical facility, but I don't know. I just, my first one, I was, I had preeclampsia. So I, they gave me Pitocin and I was like stuck on the table and I did not want drugs. I did not want the epidural. And I thought I was going to die. I mean, my lips were going blue from the pain. Like the contractions came so fast and hard, but I just didn't want I didn't want it. 
I wanted my body to do its thing and I wanted to feel what my body was doing. But you're right. It's like, as soon as you say that, you get all this judgment. It's, it's crazy. Cause I'm like, no, but I'm not telling you that your decision was wrong. I'm saying that this is what I chose for my body, which I feel like is a reasonable thing to do. Is it not? No, right? I think some people would say, no, it's not. Yeah. There are some really powerful assumptions underlying all of that. That goes super, super deep and are really scary and harmful. I think, you know, just that whole idea that it's sacrilegious to say that you want to have control over your body, even when you are giving birth. It's like I a had bad never birth. thought about it like that. And you're so right. Well, maybe you haven't, you just probably haven't been exposed to like birth, like the trolls, you know what I, you know, you're not like in the birth field where you're constantly talking about it and, you know, writing about it and that kind of stuff. So. No, I appreciate you pointing it out to me for sure. I mean, I've definitely gotten a lot of flack for having home births. Of course, we were just talking about that before we started recording, but, but I kind of expect that. Yeah. I mean, you're right. It is, I guess, a relatively radical statement to say, no, I want to both be in a hospital or I was at least, and I want control over my body. And no, you don't get to tell me that I don't get to feel the lower half of my body. It's a really inflammatory statement in a lot of contexts. So, so now, you know, cool. Well, I've been throwing that out a lot over the past 17 years. So cool. There's so much more judgment out there that you didn't even know about. I know. I'm so sorry. I missed it. But if I want control over my own body, birthing my own baby is an inflammatory statement, then I will just remain inflammatory because trust me, if there was something wrong I would immediately turn over control of my body, right? Like, hello, this is, as I say, it's not like I'm needing control to the point of ridiculousness. I'm saying, as long as my body is doing its job, maybe we could just let it continue to do its job and see how it goes. Before I switched to the birthing center, I was at the local research, like at the a big UC Davis hospital, which is a research one university with the hospital you know, involved. And um, the reason I switched to the birthing center that had a much lower cesarean rate and was mostly managed by midwives, unless there was a problem, was because my first doctor there, and I was 22, it was my first baby, and I was about six or seven months along in a totally healthy pregnancy, you know, everything's chill. And I had been reading a lot on birth because I am kind of a control freak and I was raised by a natural birth advocate in a Leche League. My mother was a Leche League educator in the 60s and 70s and eighties. And so I had been raised with this idea of birth as a natural process and episiotomies being often unnecessary and even more dangerous than regular tears, that sort of thing. And so um, I had done a lot of reading to kind of formulate my own idea of what I wanted a birth to look like, which of course is a dangerous concept in its own, but you know, that alone is inflammatory, right? To say that you even get an opinion of what, anyway. And so I asked her, would you induce me or give me a C-section if you thought I wasn't going fast enough or whatever. And, and she looks at me and she starts snapping her fingers and she goes, if I don't see you moving along the way I think you should, I will induce you. And I was like, we're done here. Wow. Thank you for your honesty. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And she snapped her fingers in my face and it was like so clear that she had this graph of normal that she was going to cling to. And if I've deviated at all, it was over. And I was like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not doing this. Like, uh-uh. so, and, and in fact, my four births 
have all looked so different in terms of time frame and how long they took and what happened with the contractions. It was, it's crazy how different they were. Yeah. I'm still yeah. thinking about the snapping of the fingers, which feels like there's like some weird symbolism there that I can't think of right this second. But just the idea of someone snapping their fingers in your face is just that was awful. a red flag. <laughs> yeah, it was terrible. And it was, and it was her whole attitude of, if you don't adhere to what I believe is exactly the normal rhythm of this, then I'm going to take control from you. Well, that's what I was saying. It actually, it sounds like an, I'm in charge. I'm mm -hmm. in charge. Absolutely. 100%. Not you, not your body. Right. I'm in charge. Right. Right. And I will happily give up control if I need to, right? Or being in charge. And when I had preeclampsia, I mean, oh, I let them induce me 100%. Like, that's not something I wanted. But they, you know, the doctor said, you have high blood pressure. We need to induce you today. And I went, okay, cool. I mean, I'm not stupid. I'm not like, you know what, doctor? I'd rather just use sage or some peppermint oil. You know, I'll just, I'll just take my chances. Well, on that note, we need to go to a break. We'll be right back with Janelle. Hi, my name's Henry. By the way, my mom is working for Birth Monopoly. I have a secret that I can't tell anybody. What I know about Birth Monopoly is not very much. This is Birth Aloud Radio with Kristen Piscucci. We're back with Janelle Hanchett. So Janelle, let's talk about your book. I'm just happy to be here. Okay. So, I mean, it's basically about alcoholism and motherhood. Mm -hmm. Would you yeah. say that? Or is that yeah. like... No, yeah, for sure. And recovery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um, I'm a recovering alcoholic and drug addict who I've been sober 10 years. Actually, just a few days ago was 10 years. And I was... I noticed late... that, actually. I meant to say I know, something. It's crazy, right? Congratulations. Yes. It's amazing. It's, thank you. It's crazy. It's been, it's been 10 years already. It's like, anyway, I was a late stage. So my addiction had progressed into later stages where, to the point where people end up usually either not recovering or dying or going to jail or mental institutions. And I lost my children. My mother took my children from me. Well, and, and I don't mean that in a negative way. It was wonderful that she did that. I was unable to care for my children. She took them from 2007 to 2009. I got sober in 2009. I started writing Renegade Mothering in 2011, but I didn't write about recovery from addiction. And that was just because I was writing about motherhood. I wasn't hiding. I really, that just wasn't the purpose of the blog. I wanted to write about, I wanted to write the thing I couldn't find that I wanted to read about motherhood and which we kind of already touched on. And I also really didn't want accolades for taking on responsibilities that were always mine, right? Like I, I really didn't want to just come out and be like, hey, I was basically in a dumpster two years ago and now I'm great. And then the world goes, oh my God, you're so amazing. You know, I just, I wasn't in that place, but over the years, what ended up happening is I kind of felt like A, that I was hiding and B, that I could help people. You know, I started realizing that that we really don't talk about motherhood and addiction 
very much. And when we do talk about it, it's always, almost always framed within the structure of, I was a terrible alcoholic and then I had my baby. And I was reborn out of love for my baby and I never drank again. And I would read that narrative over and over and over again, all around, you know, the internet and books and movies. And I love that that happens for some people, but I would really start thinking about the children of alcoholics who couldn't get sober and the conclusions that they must have drawn from that narrative. You know, if love is enough to get a mother sober and your mother doesn't get sober, then you as a child would say to yourself, well, I guess my mother didn't love me enough. And that disturbed me simply because it's erroneous, right? It wasn't so much defending the alcoholic mother. That's never been my interest. It's more just that once addiction passes a certain point, it doesn't care who you love. And so this book was my sort of exploration of that larger question of, is motherhood enough to turn us into perfect versions of ourselves, right? I was really looking into the redemptive narrative surrounding motherhood, right? Like this idea that we are saved by motherhood, that we are turned, we are washed clean by it, that we are redeemed by it, and that the dark part of ourselves can be erased through love of our children. You know, spoiler alert, I think that's bullshit. <laughs> I think it's more just subtle erasure of women, right? Because if you erase any part of me, you're erasing me. I mean, what that's basically saying is that the instant a woman has a baby, she is transformed into a vessel of motherhood for this child. She is no longer a fully formed human being, right? Human beings have fatal flaws. We aren't that anymore. We are now just this clean slate to be used and to nurture this child. And it's bullshit. So... The book is a story about addiction and motherhood, but it's really kind of a larger exploration of that theme. Yeah, I remember, I think one of the most affecting scenes for me was like when you were getting it together to like show up for your kid at school and like mm. trying to like look like a normal, I'm doing air quotes, mother who wasn't like an addict and an alcoholic and like interacting with these other mothers who were like, I guess you would call, I guess you would say normal mothers and just like putting on the face and really you had all this other stuff going on. It just struck me because it's like, you know, maybe, maybe it's not addiction that you have going on at home or it's not, you know, whatever, you know, major issues you might be dealing with in life, but just in general, I think you're just all supposed to be the, like an archetype. Yes. Like, like yes. here's, I'm this archetype in this station wagon and you're that archetype in that minivan and you're that mm -hmm. archetype in the SUV and we're all mm -hmm. meeting at school with our kids and mm -hmm. for this small talk. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that's right. And that's, that's exactly what I was wanting to sort of address and explore is like, I think all of us have, something that when we lie our heads down at night, right? We wish we could do better. We rage, some of us are ragers, some of us have massive anxiety, depression, right? Like maybe some of us just can't stand being at home and we are really into our careers, right? Like so much guilt, so much pressure, so much of that. I mean, and it's, and it's everywhere, right? I mean, whenever there's a rapist or a murderer on the news, if you read the comments section, it's all blaming his mother 
Right. And we say, well, I guess your mother didn't love you. Right. Like anytime someone is a horrible human being, we're like, oh, I'm sorry. Were you not loved by your mother? I mean, all of that messaging is telling us that we are, we make or break these children. And so we aren't allowed to have flaws because when you think about it like that, right? Like if I'm seriously screwed up and I don't mean the superficial screwed up. I mean, that's the other thing I just get so sick of is hearing about like these incredibly superficial problems of my kid isn't in enough activities or like they don't eat all organic food. I'm like, I really want to live in a world where that's like an actual fucking problem in a family. Like, like my kid had a jar of peanut butter for breakfast today. Right. Like I'm pretty sure my toddler ate like 97 grapes, which will be really fun later. Yeah. Like, and it, it's fine, but I guess, you know, it's like that's that superficiality of what we call problems while absolutely not talking about like the real things that go on. I mean, I know very few moms who haven't raged at their children at least once in their lives. And I don't mean the like cute thing. I mean like where you lose your mind and we never talk about that. I mean, we just don't. I have, I have a friend Janelle who it's like a thing we do now. I'll like text her and be like, okay, I've got a mothering moment for you. And she's like, yes, what did you do? Right. And I'll be like, okay, so today I, and I'm not yeah. going to say it out loud what I did, mm-hmm. but I'll be like, this is the thing that I did. And she'll be like, oh, that's so bad. Okay, listen, I said this to so-and-so to my child today. <laughs> and we're just like, who right. can do the worst thing? Because it's like, you can't talk about it to anyone. Mm-mm. And so it's like this secret thing, you know, yeah. it's like, this is the only other person in the world that I can be like, yeah, I actually said this to my child, you know, and she'll right. be like, yeah, well, you know, I threw this thing and slammed this other thing and then said this. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, okay, well you win today. Like that was worse than what I did. Ha ha. Right. But then we actually right. do laugh about it. Cause we're just like, I mean, I don't feel bad about it. It's just life. Like that's reality. And I know that. Yeah. People do it because they write articles about it. And they're like, here's how not to yell at your kids. So I'm like, oh, okay. So there are people out there yelling at their kids. They just don't post it on Facebook. <laughs> right, right, right. Someone, I was doing a podcast interview with my friend, Nancy Davis Coe, and she was saying, she goes, I don't take this the wrong way. But when I read your book and I read your story, I really suddenly felt way better about like my parenting. <laughs> like, I really didn't feel that bad at all about the things I'd done. And I was like, dude, if I can be the low bar for mothers, like that's, I'm super stoked to be that because seriously, like, and that was some, one of the things that like I had to face, right. It's like, I failed my family in very serious ways that really did harm my kids. And that's not funny. And I don't laugh about it. And I had an incredible amount of shame and sadness. I mean, you know, my voice cracks right now talking about it. Like I'll yeah. never be at a point where, you know, not being with my children those two years and not going to my daughter's kindergarten graduation and having my breastfeeding toddler son taken from me, right? Like breastfeeding my toddler in that condition. I mean, we could talk about that, right? Like actual real harm. That when I got sober and I was showing up for my children and I was rebuilding my family, all of those little things did not feel like problems, right? They felt like miracles. It's a fucking miracle that the worst thing I did today was ask my teenager, what the hell is wrong with you? Right? In a yelling voice. Or, so I forgot my kid on early pickup day 
and maybe I got her a phone because I forgot her that often. Okay, so like those are not stellar parenting moments, but that's one of the other reasons I wanted to write this book, right? Is that like, if I could set mothers free a little bit from these insane expectations we put, because I really do have a healthy, normal family. We went through these horrible things. It ended 10 years ago. For 10 years, we've just been a very standard, raucous, regular family with all the problems and beauty involved there. And we're going to be okay. But honestly, I really feel like there really are moms who, who really think they're seriously screwing up their children by the occasional rage session or the not having them do enough activities or not reading to them every single day, no matter what, or not, you know, missing homework. I mean, I just, it's, it's really far out of my radar, but I see it lived. Well, one of the most amazing things I thought was how your oldest daughter was like, I don't know if the word is forgiving or like accepting unfazed almost. I'm sorry. I'm talking about like at the time where like, all this was going on. I mean, this is your first kid. So she had the most exposure to mm-hmm, right. everything that was happening. Right. And she didn't like reject you. You know, she wasn't like, I fucking hate you. You're a horrible mother. She just seemed like, well, kind of like your husband. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, I love you anyway. I'm not rejecting you. And I thought that was really amazing. Well, like over and, she was, and over and over again, you know, right. where there was like an opportunity to be like, okay, this is enough. I've had it. Fuck you. Mm-hmm. Like you failed me this, you know, you failed me one time too many, but right. there was just like this amazing, like uh, whatever you want to call it. Grace. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, with my husband, husband. I didn't do that on purpose. Yeah. That is her middle name. Well, she was seven when I got sober. So she was pretty little. Right. And so I think if I had gotten sober when she was 14 or 15, this would have been a very different experience, right? Also, you have to understand that, you know, she was taken in by my mom and Matt got sober two years, my husband got sober two years before me. So she was never put into a place and I was very, very lucky, which is also, you know, another topic, but that's also also socioeconomic privilege, race privilege, right? That I had a family that was able to take my kids in. I was pulled over and never arrested for drunk driving, even though I failed a drunk test three times and three different occasions. That's incredible. Uh Uh-huh. So I had, you know, I was living in a middle-class suburban neighborhood. So nobody suspected me of driving around with drugs in the back of my car. You know, so I wasn't being targeted by police. In fact, I had quite the opposite whatever the evidence is in front of our face, we can't believe that you would possibly do anything like that. Right. So right. Cause you're just a little not- middle-class, nice little white mommy. Right. So my outcomes were very high end, high bottom, you know, air quotes compared to other than my, you know, some of my mental condition. I had drug induced schizophrenia and was very mentally ill, but for a while there. So my daughter was very well supported and loved by her dad. I mean, and me, of course, but I wasn't there. And her grandparents, she had a massive support system. She saw me regularly and she was very supported and loved by her dad and grandparents when I wasn't there. So I don't want to discount the support systems involved in managing somebody who's sick with addiction and alcoholism. And my family, 
did pull away from me at just the right time. You know, Mac asked for a divorce about four months before I got sober, which I only saw the connection in hindsight. I didn't get sober because I wanted Mac back. I thought he was gone for good. But my mother and father also stopped asking me, stopped asking me if I was sober, right? They, they stopped micromanaging. I was living with my mother. She had this sort of contract on the refrigerator. I mean, I was almost 30 years old and this was how she had to deal with me of what I had to do to stay in her house. And if I violated the list, I was out. And if I was out, I would have been sleeping in my car. I mean, I, there was nowhere else. I was not able to support myself at this time. And I'm so grateful for how healthy my family was and how they kept themselves. You know, they dealt with their own codependency and treated their own codependency in a way that they could let go of me when the time was right and force me to see the results of my actions. And I think in the long term, that's largely how families heal, right? The addict or the alcoholic has got to take responsibility for what they've done. And if they don't do that, there's no hope for healing in the family. Well, and then it's interesting because, I mean, that was kind of what it seemed like a turning point for you was when you sort of gave up. So it's like they sort of mm-hmm. gave up yep. and then you gave up. And then miraculously, that was when you finally beat it. But it's very strange. I never would have, like I wrote about this in the book. And it's funny because I get, I get a pretty decent number of messages and emails from readers that say, but what actually happened? <laughs> What actually made you sober? Like, what's the rest of the story? What's the, dis- what you what's the choice you made? Or like, what's the thing that made you get sober? And, and I, I had a hard time writing that section of the book because I knew people were going to want that. And I forced myself just to tell the truth. I mean, I told the truth through the entire book or I left it out. If I wasn't going to tell the whole truth, I left it out. But I, I, I wrote it exactly how it happened. And, I, and it was true that it was, it was in the end of the fight that I somehow got the power to stay sober. And I don't understand that, but I I had to write it how it happened. It was when I gave up fighting that I became, and I believe the reason that works is because I always had all of these beliefs about myself that separated me from you, right? Like I didn't have to listen to you because what you said about my drinking or what you said about my life, because you don't understand me, right? You don't understand what I've been through. So you don't understand why I drink like this. I have it under control. Everything is fine. And when that surrender happened, when I was faced with the sort of full truth of myself, I saw that my life was in shambles because of me and that I had no capacity to fight alcohol and addiction and that I was going to die this way. And I had no fight left. And when you have no fight left, you become teachable. If you have all of these mental structures in your mind blocking you from the truth of yourself, you can't change. And so I believe that's why a lot of late stage addicts like me find permanent sobriety or hopefully permanent sobriety in a surrender rather than another battle. So it sort of sounds like you're saying you had all these constructs about yourself. And when you were just finally like, obviously I know nothing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Exactly. Because this is not working. Precisely. Then like, I love when you have no fight, you become teachable. That Mm -hmm. makes a lot of sense. It does make sense, right? Yeah. It's like walking into a situation with your fists up going, you know, the, 
everything you say, I'm going to fight you on because I have all these ideas. Like you're not saying the thing I want to hear. So I'm going to fight you. Instead, you're like, I know nothing. My life is a failure. I'm a dead woman. So why don't you go ahead and give me what you have? Because the chances are it's better than what I have. And that's when, of course, Good News Jack came in. And, you know, I found a lot of. He was a trip. Yeah. Isn't he great? Yeah. Had some. And awesome I met him at a 12-step recovery meeting. And he's still my friend. We're still in contact. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. But it's so funny because the only thing I've been accused of lying about are the things Jack said, which is absolutely hilarious because that's the only dialogue that I actually had written down verbatim from when well, it happened. quotes are ridiculous. Right. Like, okay. Yeah. Not- I mean, there's a, well, yeah. I mean, I'll never understand him as a teacher and how that whole thing worked out, but he's, he's very well known in our community. Uh, the addiction, the local, my town and he works with a lot of alcoholics and he's helped a lot of people. So it wasn't just me that received his glorious teachings, but he just had a way of saying the truth in an incredibly direct, accessible way. And it was funny because when we were working together, I would write down in the margin of my book or my diary, my journal that I had or whatever, the exact thing he said. And then I actually took it from that to my book. And people have said, like, I don't think she's telling the truth about that guy. Nobody would say anything like that. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's like the actual verbatim quote. I just think it's funny. He, does, he sounds like a movie character. Totally. It sounds made up because it's, like, too good to be true. Okay. Right. Agreed. Agreed. He said, he said, recognize that you, you are the problem. You, you're the problem. You've always been the fucking problem. Isn't that wonderful? (laughs) And then your response was, I've never heard anything more wonderful, Jack, sarcastically. And he says, because there is power there, you fool, power. That's what you need, what you've always needed, right? You aren't a victim. You try to arrange your life and control everyone to fix your inner self. It never works. You try harder, people hate you more. All the while, you're looking at the problem. He laughed again. Exactly. That's a paraphrase of something that is taught a lot in 12-step groups, right? But, you know, and, and I remember when he said that to me, like the, the realization that, you know, I had spent my whole life blaming others for the reason my life looked the way it did, right? You know, well, this happened when I was a child and my mom did this and my dad did this and, you know, it was everyone else's fault. My husband did this. And when he told me that I'm the problem, that the condition of my inner self was the reason I repeatedly went back to drinking and drugs. And that that was actually good news because there's some power there. That made a lot of sense to me, right? There's no power in blaming other people. There's no power in being the victim. Like, if I truly am defined by what happened to me as a child and there's no way out of that, then I'm fucked for life. Yeah, you have no agency. There's no agency. And of course, we obviously carry trauma from our childhood. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, you know... In terms of drinking, in terms of the way, you know, my sobriety, if I was actually unable to be sober because of what happened to me as a child, then I had no hope ever for anything. Then we're all fucked. We're all (laughs) fucked. Right. And then he would point out to me all the myriad people that had things happen to them as a child and didn't end up alcoholics and that there's other ways we can deal with things. And But, you know, I share the message and Jack's message would not have been helpful to other people. I think, you know, because he was very direct. He was very harsh, but I needed that because I had a huge ego. I was really full of myself. I was really 
thought I was, you know, the sharpest tool in the shed. And so I really needed somebody to break through who I thought I was and what I thought I knew. But he was the perfect teacher for me. I think for other people, he would have really hurt their feelings a lot. And like, (laughs) he hurt my feelings, but I also knew that what he was telling me was going to probably save my life. And in fact, it did. It sounded like truth to you. Exactly. Well, um, we are out of time. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad we got to talk. Finally. Me too. I love this conversation. Hi, this is Kristen. I don't know if you've noticed, but there aren't a lot of shows like this one out there. And one big reason is it has never been my goal to get corporate or mainstream ad money. Nope. We are supported by folks who are part of the change. In fact, the show you're listening to now is made possible by Evidence-Based Birth, your go-to source for high-quality, unbiased information on the latest evidence-based care practices for childbirth. We love Evidence-Based Birth for its radical approach to changing maternity care, taking the evidence out of paywalled journals and translating it right into the hands of parents, birth workers, and medical professionals so they can make change from the ground up. Like Evidence-Based Birth, you can help us keep Birth Aloud Radio an independent voice challenging a powerful status quo. Email us at birthaloudradio at gmail.com to find out how. Again, that's birthaloudradio at gmail.com.